Good morning. Let me, uh, I can officially now say Happy New Year to you all. We're officially in 2024, the first Sunday of the new year. A nice uh, snowy Sunday for all of us, so that's great. Uh, we're glad to see you all braved the, the weather and made it here. So we'll get started in our worship service this morning. And as we do so, let's just take a few moments uh, just to bow in silent prayer and reflection. psalmist declares, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And so, Father, as we approach you this morning in worship, help us to do so humbly. Help us to remember your glory, your righteousness, that you are the judge of all, that you are the exalted one, that you are the Lord. So, Lord, help us to praise you this morning, to see clearly from your word how you shine forth, and to share your glory and your goodness with others. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. And then please stand and sing with us. Thank you. 
just uh, highlight for us a few announcements here as we continue on in worship. You'll find these in your bulletins. You can see them on our website, waymouthchurch.com. But just a few things this morning. First, uh, this week we are launching a new uh, class. We're just calling it the Tough Text class. After I named it that, I realized that's kind of a hard thing to say 10 times fast, Tough Text. But we'll be launching that class in two sessions, one starting this Wednesday and the other one starting a week from today, next Sunday. So uh, this is a class, the idea of it is to spend some time together looking at the the tough or the challenging, the confusing, the controversial texts in the Bible. Um, The texts that maybe as you've started your Bible reading plan this year, you hit these texts in Genesis or Exodus or even Leviticus or something, and uh, that's where things get a little harder. You have some questions or things become confusing or you're not sure uh, what to do with certain passages of scripture. I think we all also know people in our lives who maybe have struggled with faith or with doubt or have questioned 
the truth of the Bible because of certain passages of Scripture, especially in how uh, they impact our, our world today culturally. Things like slavery, things like the relationships between husbands and, and wives, or men and women in the church, or sexuality, things like that. And so our hope with this class is not just to, to help ourselves grow in confidence in handling these texts of Scripture, but also to be equipped to be able to help others understand these texts when they come to us with their doubts or with their struggles in the Bible. Um, so we think this is an, an important thing to do together, whether you're a parent, whether you're single, whether you're older, whether you're younger, whether you're a student. These classes will be open to, um, to students on Sunday mornings as well. Um, so uh, the way it's going to work is it's two identical sessions, so we'll be doing the same text on Wednesday nights that we do on Sunday mornings. Um, so Wednesday nights will be part of our family nights along with Weymouth Kids and Weymouth Students in the prayer meeting. And so we'll be launching the first one this Wednesday uh, at 6.30, along with the other normal Wednesday night activities. And then the, second, uh, the first Sunday one will be a week from today uh, at 9 a.m. during our Sunday school hours. So those are both launched this week. So depending on your schedule, depending on what you do Sundays, what you do Wednesdays, you're welcome to go to one or the other. You won't miss out. They don't build on each other. They, the Wednesday ones are the same uh, the size of the Sunday, Sunday ones. So, so two sessions, tough text class. Try and say that 10 times fast when you get home. It's a good challenge, uh, but that'll be starting this week. Secondly, also this week on Thursday, we have our uh, monthly SAM luncheon. This is our senior adult ministries lunch. So it's a great time if you're a senior adult to come meet in the, the uh, community room uh, at noon on Thursday. It's a great time of, of fellowship and encouraging one another uh, around really good food and conversation. So that'll be this Thursday. And then finally, at the end of the month on January 28th, uh, we'll be having our, our annual congregational meeting uh, in this room a few minutes after the service. And this is an important time for us to gather together as a church family where we get to celebrate God's goodness to us over this past year. We'll be discussing the financial report from 2023. We'll be discussing uh, the elders' proposal for the budget, for the reserves in the new year. We'll be looking to affirm uh, three elder roles for the year, two uh, of which, God willing, are reaffirming to current elders, and one of which would be affirming a new elder. And we'll have more details about that in the coming weeks here as we go. Uh, it's also going to be a great time to, to look ahead and to think about different goals and objectives the elders are, are praying about, thinking about for 2024. So uh, it's a big meeting. It's an important meeting. We hope that you all can make it. If you're a member, we particularly invite you to come. But if you're not a member, if you're an attender, we, we welcome you to come as well because it's, it's not just going to be a business meeting. It's going to be a time where we get to celebrate God's goodness and also prayerfully look ahead. Uh, to what's in store for the new year, to think about ministry and life together as a church family. So we'll be providing refreshments and, and some, some light lunch for that as well, because we know that's a big meeting. We know it's hard to push against lunch, so that'll be available as well on the 28th. So tough text class starting this week, Sam luncheon this Thursday, and then annual congregational meeting on the 28th. So with all that in mind, let's, uh, let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you for the opportunities we get to have each Sunday, each week to gather together, to praise you, to serve with one another, to encourage one another. Thank you for the opportunities we have during the week on Wednesdays and Thursdays and other nights with life groups and other uh, studies on Saturdays and, and other times, Lord, the opportunities we have to get together, uh, not just to fellowship, but to come around your word, to study it, to share it with one another, to learn how to share it with others who don't yet know you. So we pray that you'll go before all these things, you'll go before this new class, the Sam luncheon, the annual meeting, and other studies and ministries and groups that are ongoing already. Lord, we pray that you'll use all of our time together, all of our work together, 
in your word and fellowship with one another to glorify your name. That you'll equip us and make us people who can take and share your word to those who don't know you, to those who might be struggling with doubt or unbelief, with fear and uncertainty. Help us to be able to go and share with others the sufficiency, the goodness of your word, how it clearly points us to yourself, how it shows us our sin and our fallenness, the judgment we deserve from you, but it also shows us our Savior, your Son, who bore that judgment so that we can know you and walk with you, not just individually, but together as a church. So help us to praise you for that goodness, for the way you've built us together as a church family in Christ. And we lift up those in our family who uh, have uh, been dealing with health struggles, dealing with other struggles. Lord, and this morning we thank you for, uh, for Bill Fredericks' successful surgery this week, uh, his heart, that he's been able to, to do well, to come home, to recover, and be back with us this morning. We thank you for your grace to him. And we lift up others like Connie Sanook who are struggling with health issues and and we just pray that you'll strengthen them and give them your grace and your peace in a powerful way during this difficult time. Help us to be your hands and feet to one another, especially to those who are struggling with difficulty uh, during this uh, start of the year. And help us to be your hands and feet also in our community to serve and love others, to point others to the goodness and the grace that you have poured out in Christ. Let that be what unites us. Let that be what we live for as a church. Help all we do to glorify you, to share your word, and to point others to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, uh, since it is Communion Sunday, we'll be finishing our time uh, at the end around the Lord's table. I'm going to dismiss the kids now to Weymouth Kids, so you guys can go line up behind Miss Gent, head back to the Weymouth Kids room, and then uh, the rest of us will stand and sing together. So please stand with us.
Thank you for all your many blessings to us, and, and not least of all, your grace, Lord. Um, thank you for the many ways that you have blessed each and every person here, and, and not least of all, this church as well. Um, Lord, I pray as we, as we turn to your word and, um, and studying of your word that we would thoughtfully consider what you have to teach us here this morning, Lord. I pray all this in your name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6 here. We are uh, rapidly approaching the end of our series here in the book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament following on the book of Jonah. Uh, So we are coming to the end of this series uh, this week and next week, God willing. This morning we'll be in Micah chapter 6. We'll look at a larger chunk this morning. We'll look at all of chapter 6 and then the first Uh, seven verses of chapter seven and then god willing we'll we'll finish the book next sunday and the following sunday we will start a new series in the book of first peter so if you're someone who likes to read ahead that's where we're heading god willing so we'll finish micah we'll jump to the new testament to the book of first peter in a couple weeks so this morning we'll look at micah 6 1 through uh, chapter 7 verse 7 i'm not going to read all that for us uh, right now Uh, i'm going to start just by reading the first Eight verses here of Micah chapter 6. So follow along as I. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord, and you stirring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up to the land from the house of slavery. And I sent you before Moses, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Bayar, answered him, and what happened from Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Excuse me. I'm getting over the, like a month-long cold here, so it's part of the fun of having young kids, right? Um, so will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? <clears throat> shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
<clears throat> he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord... It's stuck in there. It's like, I want <clears throat> And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Woo, we made it. All right. Please pray with me. <coughs> there we go. Well, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this chance to study it, Lord. We thank you that you can communicate it even through feeble frames like ours. So help us this morning to study it together, to see you more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Let's see what happens here. Let's go. All right, so uh, if you've ever seen like a m trial on TV or in a movie, or if you've ever maybe been in a trial yourself, God forbid, who knows, right? Um, you know that lawyers at the end of a trial are given the chance to make a closing argument, right? They're given the chance to, to make a final statement about uh, <clears throat> to the judge and jury why their defendant is guilty or innocent. And in chapter 6 here, what we see going on is that Micah is inviting the Lord the Lord himself to make his own closing argument, to make his clone, his, he calls for creation itself, for the world itself to hear the indictment, the judgment of God against the people of Judah. And so the Lord himself here, like a skilled lawyer, he lays out his case against his people. He reminds them of his own righteous acts, his own faithfulness to redeem, <coughs> to redeem and to protect them. But then he declares his requirement for them. He declares uh, how they should live in order to be faithful to his covenant with them. And then finally, he promises a just retribution. Oh, thank you. There we go. Cough drops. I should have thought of that. Thank you, Renee. Look at that. This is some of the fun you get to have here. All right. See it right there as an example of being a church family, right? Sometimes you, you don't think to bring cough drops when you have a cold and someone else has them for you. I love it, right? So there we go. So... And finally, he promises just retribution against those who have failed to keep his covenant and their idolatry, their injustice. So we see righteousness, we see his requirement, we see his retribution. And so we are given in this text the argument that those who fail to meet the Lord's righteous requirements will deserve his righteous retribution. Those who fail to meet the Lord's righteous requirement deserve his righteous retribution. And this argument, it's one that we need to hear just as much as the people of Judah did in Micah's day. So this morning, we'll look at each piece of this argument. First, the Lord's righteousness, then the Lord's requirements, and finally, the Lord's retribution. So first, the Lord's righteousness in verses 1 to 5. Micah, he begins this indictment, this uh, charge by calling creation to hear the judgment of the Lord. <clears throat> He calls the mountains themselves to sit in the jury box to, as God brings his case against his people. And right away we see that this is no mere misdemeanor, right? Judah's not just sitting in traffic court here. The one who is prosecuting his people is the one who has the authority to call the mountains to attention, to call creation itself to bear witness to his righteous judgment. The prosecutor in this case is the Lord himself, the creator, the righteous one who made a covenant with his people, a promise to be their God, to be faithful to them as they are faithful to him. 
And so as Judah faced the threat of being conquered by foreign nations as the nation of Assyria was at their border, it would have been easy for them to complain to God, to doubt his faithfulness or his goodness to them and his covenant. And so God asked them a question. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. And then he goes on to remind his people how he brought them up out of slavery to eat in Egypt, how he redeemed them, he bought them back from bondage. He also reminds his people how he protected them from their enemies, enemies like Balak, the king of Moab, who plotted to curse Israel, but instead God used Balaam to bless Israel instead. He then reminds Judah of how he was faithful to lead them across the Jordan River, from Shittim to Gilgal on dry land, how he brought them into the promised land, how he even restored his covenant with them, even when they had been unfaithful to him in the wilderness. And so as the people of Judah feared the power of foreign nations, nations like Assyria, the Lord reminds them of how he has faithfully delivered them in the past. So rather than turn away, rather than complain in fear, rather than turn their backs on God, the people Judah should once again trust their covenant Lord. And when we are faced with fearful circumstances, when we're faced with challenges and struggles, when we are weighed down and oppressed by our own sin and idolatry, when we are tempted to doubt God's faithfulness and goodness to us, the best thing we can do is to remember how he has been faithful to us in the past. Remember how he has been faithful and good to deliver us in the past. Because by remembering his righteous character, his past deliverance, what we'll find is we can find a renewed hope that even as we face struggles in the present, like not being able to talk to a group of people, even as we face struggles in the present, God is going to continue to be faithful to his people, to carry out his promises, to work through his word, even through feeble servants even in the midst of his fa- the failure of his people, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. And so in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your suffering, your doubt, even in the midst of your own unbelief, have you considered that the Lord, that God might be far more righteous, far more faithful than you ever considered, than you ever imagined? Are our thoughts of God too small? When faced with failure or suffering or doubt, do we remember his almighty power, his perfect righteousness, his unfading faithfulness? Is that the God we know? Is that the God we trust, the God we worship? Because by knowing this Lord who carries out righteous acts for his people, that we can truly find hope and security in the midst of our fears and our struggles. It's only by knowing him, trusting him, resting in him. And so we have to ask, how do we know this Lord? How do we know this one who is so great, who is so righteous, who is exalted over all creation? How do we come into his presence? And this is the question Micah turns to here in verse 6, where he moves from the Lord's righteousness then to the Lord's requirement in verses 6 to 8. You know, if you've ever been to an amusement park as a kid, then you'll know just the utter shame, the utter shame you feel when you walk up to a, to a ride and you realize you're too short to get on the ride. 
right? When you see that dreaded height requirement sign and you stand up against it and you don't measure up. I remember going to a park when I was a kid with some of my cousins and we wanted to ride the go-karts. And I remember going up and walking up, I was like six or seven at the time, and, and of course they had the, the height requirement sign at the entrance and I didn't measure up, I was too short. And so while my cousins got to go, my older cousins got to go and have the time of their lives driving the go-karts around themselves, I had to go and sit on my mom's lap while she drove the go-kart for me, right? Just utterly humiliating, <laughs> completely for a six-year-old. But I thought of that because the truth is, at the core of every human heart, there is a height required sign. There is a height required sign. We all live our lives trying to measure up, trying to meet some standard, to seek some affirmation, to secure some kind of security. We think that if we just get this or achieve that, or if that one person could just accept us, then maybe we'd truly be okay. But really, the, the question we are asking when we chase after all of those things, the ultimate question our hearts are really asking is the question that Micah asks here in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? Because you see, the Bible tells us that we were all created by God. We were all created by God in his image. And the purpose of that creation was for us to find our life, to find our joy, to find our meaning and our security in our relationship with our creator. Not in the works of our hands, not in the other people. It was all meant to be found ultimately in our perfect walk, our perfect relationship with our creator. But because of our sin, because we've all rebelled against God in immorality and injustice and idolatry, we are all naturally separated from God. We are naturally separated from our Creator, the source of life and security we were made for. And so then we all spend our lives trying to find some way to cross that gulf, to make our way back to God, or to try and find the life and security we were made for in some other source. And we try and do this in religious and irreligious ways. We might try to do this through spiritual achievement or through worldly affirmation. In verses 6 and 7, what Micah is doing is he is highlighting how the people of Judah, they tried to use sacrifices to cover that gulf between them and God. They trusted in their own religious rituals to make them able to come before the Lord. And here, Micah, he engages in a bit of prophetic hyperbole at this point. He starts by asking about burnt offerings and year-old calves, asking if these things would be enough to come before the Lord, referencing costly but traditional sacrifices in the temple. But then he moves on to, to a question about offering thousands of rams and thousands of rivers of oil, which is just a ludicrously large offering. Nobody would be able to offer this kind of sacrifice at that scale. But that's what Micah asked. And then he reaches the peak of his hyperbole by asking, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is striking because sacrificing a firstborn son was indeed, a uh, firstborn child was indeed a practice that uh, foreign nations practiced in Micah's day. This was even a practice that had infiltrated Jerusalem during the reign of, of wicked kings, this practice of sacrificing your children to foreign gods. And so what Micah is doing here, somewhat ironically, is he's asking if even this most costly, this most unthinkable of sacrifices, 
the sacrifice of a firstborn child, if that would be enough to make up for his transgression, to make up for the sin that separates him from God. And Micah's answer in these verses is no. Is no. He makes it clear that not even these unfathomable offerings in their depth, in their magnitude, not even these would be enough to meet God's righteous requirement. Because these sacrifices do not make up for the sin that keeps us from being able to enter God's presence. So then with what shall we come before the Lord? How can we truly measure up to stand in God's presence? To find our life, to find the life, the joy, the security that can only be found in a relationship with our Creator. Well, Micah tells us in verse 8, probably the most famous verse in all of the book of Micah, it says this. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See here, Micah, like a good teacher who reminds their students of the fundamentals, Micah is reminding his listeners that God has already told them what they need. He's already told them what is good. He's already given them his righteous requirement. That the Lord requires his people to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. And here, Micah, he's, he's calling his listeners back to the basics. He's drawing their attention to the very heart of the law itself. And we know this because Micah's words, they echo the words of Moses back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, where Moses, he declares to all of Israel, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding today for your good. This is what Moses declared to the people of Israel hundreds of years before Micah's day. And what's really striking about these verses in Deuteronomy is that Moses makes this declaration to the people of Israel. He makes it right after recounting, reminding them of their sin with the golden calf. Because what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses is giving Israel, giving the people of God the law before they they enter the promised land. So he's giving this long sermon, he's giving them the law of God, and in the midst of it, he reminds them of one of the darkest moments in their history, of the time when they had made and worshipped a golden calf while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law. The people of Israel utterly abandoned the God who had delivered them from Egypt and worshipped an idol made with their own hands. And then the Lord, he responded to this idolatry by disciplining his people, But then he ultimately relented from fully destroying them after the mediation of Moses. And God, he had Moses write the law again on two new tablets of stone, and he restored his covenant with his people. And so Moses recounts the story to the people of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. He reminds them of God's faithfulness. He graciously restored them. And then after reminding them of this, he asks the people, so now, what does the Lord require of you? And he tells them, the Lord requires you to fear God, to love the Lord with everything you have, to keep his commandments and to walk in his ways. Or as Micah put it, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
See, by echoing Moses' words to his own listeners, Micah, he's doing something uh, amazing. He's doing something remarkable. Because throughout this letter, he's, throughout this book, he's been proclaiming to them God's judgment for their sin and their idolatry. But here in verse 8, he's reminding them that just as Israel's sin with the golden calf was not enough to keep God from restoring his people, so the sins of Judah in Micah's day are not enough to keep God from restoring them either. That if God could restore his covenant back then, he can restore it now, even in the midst of their sin and failure. Because they too know what is good. They too know what is required to come before the Lord. They too have God's righteous requirements. They too are called to do justice, to seek the equity and flourishing, not just of themselves, but also of their neighbors, to love kindness, to treat people with the same mercy, the same steadfast love with which God has treated them, to walk humbly with God, not chasing after other idols, not trying to find life and security somewhere else, but walking humbly with God, knowing our own unworthiness, knowing his righteousness, and then fearing his name, loving him with everything we have, with all our heart, soul, and mind. This is what the Lord requires of his people. This is how we come before him. See, the people of Jesus, they thought that making enough sacrifices could make up for their sin. They thought that meeting their religious obligations, carrying out their temple rituals, checking the spiritual boxes, would allow them to cover over the sin, their sin and have a good relationship with God. And we often think the same way. We often think that all that God requires of us is to attend church every once in a while. Maybe stop by a Bible study occasionally or or read a few verses out of Scripture or give a little bit to charity. Or maybe he just wants us to to post the right thing on social media or to support the right causes. Maybe he just wants us to be a good spouse or a parent or employee. Maybe these are the things that God requires of us that can cover over our sin. Because we know that deep down we're not perfect. We know that deep down we, uh, we don't measure up to God's perfect righteous standard. We know we can be foolish. We know we can be selfish. We know we can be wrong. But we think, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but maybe if I check enough spiritual boxes, I'll be okay. Or maybe if I get the right affirmation from my spouse or my boss or from the culture or the world, maybe that proves that I'm okay. We just have to do a few external things, make a few sacrifices, check a few boxes, and then I'll be good. But simply checking the boxes, simply going through the motions, simply putting on a veneer of righteousness, it's not enough to deal with the sin, with the darkness and rebellion that separates us from God. See, God doesn't just want our sacrifices or our Sundays or our lip service. God wants our whole hearts. He wants us to love and serve him with everything that we have. He wants the core of our being to be so devoted to him that we become the kind of people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with him. But how many of us can actually say that we do that? How many of us can actually say that we truly fear and love God with everything that we have? How many of us can actually say that we do justice? that we seek the good and flourishing of our neighbors, of the most vulnerable among us? How many of us truly love kindness? 
How many of us offer mercy and steadfast love even to the people that are hard to love? Even to our enemies, people we dislike or disagree with? How many of us can truly say that on our own we are able to walk humbly with the God of the universe? If we're really honest, if we're really reading our Bibles, if we're really honest about our own hearts, then we'll see that none of us meet this requirement. None of us measure up. And that is a problem. Because what we see in this text is that those who fail to meet the Lord's righteous requirement deserve his righteous retribution. Deserve his righteous retribution. And this is Micah's message then in the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. First the Lord's righteousness, then, uh, then the Lord's redemption. What was that third, second point? I was just talking about it. It's out of my head here. Let's just see here. The Lord's righteous requirement, the Lord's righteousness, his requirement, and then finally, his retribution. Because you see, after declaring the Lord's righteous requirement, Micah, he turns and he declares the Lord's righteous retribution against those who have failed this requirement, who have failed it in their injustice, in their idolatry. And don't worry, we're not going to read through all these verses here this morning in chapter 6 and 7, but let me just draw our attention to some of the key verses here in the rest of the text. Because the Lord says to the people of Judah in verse 9, he says, Hear the rod, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And that's quite a statement there. God, he's condemning the utter wickedness, the utter injustice of his people. And he goes on to say that he can't acquit the man with wicked scales, the rich man who have deceitful uh, violence, deceitful words in their mouth. He's calling out the injustice of those with deceitful scales and deceitful words. Those who rather than doing justice, rather than seeking the good and flourishing of their neighbors, instead deceive and oppress their neighbors. And because they do this, then therefore God, he promises to strike them with a grievous blow. It's another strong statement there. He unleashes covenant curses against them in verses 14 to 15. He says to them, you shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall put away, but not preserve. You shall sow, but not reap. See, in retribution for their injustice, God is promising to make his people empty, frustrated, and fruitless. And he reminds them why in verse 16. He says, For you have kept the the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels. See, rather than trusting the Lord, rather than walking with him and meeting his righteous requirement, the people of Judah instead trusted in wicked kings who led them into idolatry and injustice. So God promises them to, to make them a desolation, to make them a hissing, to make them a scorn of his people. That's not good if God promises to make you a hissing, to make you a scorn, to make you a desolation. What God is doing is he's promising just retribution against the injustice of his people. His people who know his righteous requirement to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with God. But instead of doing justice, they do injustice. Instead of loving kindness, they love wickedness. Instead of walking humbly with God, they walked pridefully with other gods, other idols. So the Lord promises his just retribution against them. 
And this should humble us. This should convict us. Because we're not here to judge the people of Judah when we read this. This is a mirror. This is a, a measuring stick showing us that we are just like the people of Judah. That we are just like them in their failure and their sin. That in our hearts, we too walk in wickedness and selfishness and pride. We too embrace selfishness and deceit in our relationships with other people. We too chase after other idols. We try and find life and security in other places rather than with God. And so the righteous requirement of God here, it's like a height required sign for a six-year-old. It shows us how far we fall short. And this should lead us then to lament, to mourn as Micah does in chapter 7. Because look at what he declares in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. Micah is saying that he and the people of Judah, because of their sin, they become like a fruitless vine. That at the time of harvest, there are no grapes to eat. Because then the godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. All have turned away from God, have made themselves spiritually empty and fruitless. Or as Micah says in verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Or then verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge. See, Micah here, he's describing God's people as a hedge of thorns, as a prickly briar when you expect a fruitful vine. And Micah mourns this in verses 5 and 6 because he's seeing the effects of it all around him. He describes how people can't even trust their own neighbors or friends, how even families are rising up against each other as they fear foreign enemies, as they walk in oppression and sin instead of justice and kindness. God's people are filled with injustice and strife with one another. Instead of walking humbly with God, his people are on the receiving end of God's judgment. And this leads Micah to mourn, to lament. But then it leads him to do something else too in verse 7. Look with me at what Micah says here in verse 7. He says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. See, even as he mourns the coming judgment of God, Micah declares that he's going to look to the Lord. He remembers that the Lord of judgment is also the Lord of salvation. That God can work even in the midst of judgment to bring salvation for his people. That he can restore them from even the worst failure. That the God who calls the mountains to hear his indictment is the same God who can hear his people's cry for mercy. And so Micah declares, he says, I will wait for the God of my salvation. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Micah, he's looking, he's waiting, looking forward for the day when God will bring salvation out of judgment fully and finally, when God will ultimately rescue and restore his people. But unlike Micah, we who deserve the same retribution. We too, who, we also live in a world where no one is righteous, not even one. We don't have to look and long and wait for that day to come because that day has already arrived. It's already arrived. Back in chapter 6 and verse 7, Micah, when he was at the height of his hyperbole, 
He asked, shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah asked if the sacrifice of his son would be enough to cover over his transgression, his sin, to bring him into the presence of the Lord. And in asking that, Micah was exaggerating to make a point. But when we read the rest of the Bible, what we discover, shockingly, is that this is exactly what God has done for us. That in his righteousness, in his desire to redeem and restore his people, even when we failed to keep his righteous requirement, that God sent his own son into the world, his firstborn into the world, to bear his righteous retribution for us. God sacrificed his own firstborn son, his son Jesus Jesus Christ, for our transgressions, for our sin. God sent Jesus to the cross. We're on the cross. Jesus died to pay the price of God's wrath. For he bore in himself God's just retribution for our sin in our place. And then he rose again so that in Christ we can come before the Lord. Even with all our failures, even with all the ways that we've fallen short. See, on our own, we can't meet God's righteous requirement. But Christ has met it for us. And so even though we fail to do justice, in Christ, God is just in the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Even though we fail to love kindness, in Christ, God has perfectly poured out his steadfast love and tender mercy. Even though we fail to walk humbly with God, in Christ, God himself humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross so that in Christ we can walk with him. We can know him and have a relationship with him. And so if we are in Christ, if we trust in him alone for our salvation, not our own efforts, not some other idol out there in the world, if we trust in him alone, then not only are we accepted by God as if we met his righteous requirement, but then in Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we actually have the true power, the true motive to begin to actually live out this righteous requirement. In Christ, we can begin to do justice when we remember how we have been justified in Christ, how we have been freed from oppression and bondage to sin. And so we can go and offer this freedom and restoration to others through our words, through our actions. We can do justice because we've been justified in Christ. In Christ, we can love kindness when we remember that when we were God's enemies, when we were far from him, when we were hard-hearted and hostile towards him, he offered us his steadfast love and mercy. And so we can offer that mercy, that kindness, even to our enemies when we remember how God offered it to us in Christ when we were his enemies. In Christ, we can love kindness. We can pour out mercy on others, even the hardest people to love. And in Christ, we can walk humbly with God. We can be accepted by God. We can walk in communion with him, not because of anything that we have done, but because Christ met for us the Lord's righteous requirement. And so it is only in Christ that we can live out this requirement because it is only Christ who bore the retribution we deserve for failing to meet this requirement. So with what shall we come before the Lord? Well, my friends, there's only one answer. 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. Please pray with me. Well, Father, we thank you for your grace that is greater than all our sin. We thank you for your mercy that is more than all of our failures and all of our mistakes, selfishness. So, Lord, help us this morning to turn away from all the idols that we are chasing, all the other places we are trying to find life and security from, all the ways we are trying to measure up in ourselves, and help us to turn humbly to Christ to look to him, to wait for the God of our salvation, to trust in the one who met your requirement for us so that in him we can start to live out that requirement. Transform our hearts in Christ by your spirit so that we can be a people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with God, who cling to Christ alone and who cling to him together. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and sing with us. Our sins, they are many, His grace. 
may be seated. Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as people who uh, have been redeemed in Christ, as people who have trusted Christ for salvation, the one who, who met that permit for us, communion is an opportunity we have as a church family to celebrate, to remember, to preach to ourselves, to preach to one another what Christ has done for us to remember his body broken for us on the cross, his blood shed for our salvation. This is a time of remembrance where the symbols of the bread and the cup remind us of the body and blood of Christ. It's a time for those who have expressed faith in Christ, who have professed trust in him as their savior. And if you're not sure if you've done that, if you're not sure what that means, then this morning we would invite you, instead of taking the elements, to take Christ, to, to trust in him, to rest in him alone. Uh, for salvation and not anything else we might chase in this world. And if you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I know our elders would as well, or other people or greeters. Just grab somebody and talk to them. Um, and we'd love to talk with you more, answer any questions that you may have about that. But as we enter into this time of remembrance, let me pray for the bread. And Father, we thank you for the, the, the body of Christ broken for us. Well, even though we deserve your righteous retribution, you sent your perfect righteous son to bear that retribution, to bear that judgment for us, to die in our place, to bear the weight of our sin and our judgment. So help us now to, to rest in him more fully. Help this time of remembrance to lead us to rejoice in Christ, to grow in us a desire to share him with others, to, to be motivated to show others the justice, the justification, the mercy, the steadfast love, the joy of walking with him. So bring us closer to yourself now as we remember and rejoice in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.
we've received the bread individually, our practice is as we receive the cup to hold on to it, and then we'll drink it together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. So let me pray for the cup. Father, we praise you for the blood of Christ shed for us. Make it more clear now as this time of remembrance continues, as we pray, as we drink together. Make it clear the, the blood of Christ that washes away our sin, that there's nothing we can do to wash away, to cover over our transgressions. That's only in Christ that we can be made new, that we can be accepted by you, as if we had met your perfect requirement. So we thank you for the gift of your Son, for the gift of unity that we have in him, that allows us to rejoice and remember this good news together as a family. So help us to do so now for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we did it. We did it. Thank you guys for hanging in there with me this morning. Thank you, Renee, for saving the day. Very good. All right. So let's, uh, let's just stand for a final word of benediction. Now, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Go in peace.